Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Chaloner and you join us on a cool autumn day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on today's programme, I'm delighted to be joined by Benjamin McKay. Ben is a co-chair and trustee at My Life, My Choice, a charity which offers programmes in survivor empowerment, prevention education and solutions as well as professional training and advocacy to push back against the commercial sex trade. Um, Ben, very warm welcome to you this morning and thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for inviting me to appear on the show. It's such a pleasure to welcome you onto the airwaves, Ben. And normally we would dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But just considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation that's hung over us for this year, I feel it's appropriate that we do start there. Um, It has proven to be one of the most significant challenges for leaders in all walks of life of our time, really. But how has it affected you and your operations at My Life, My Choice? I'd say my life, my choices, it's affected everything we do. And at the beginning of the pandemic, I had a meeting with my jobs and money team and to discuss what action we were going to take because of the coronavirus. And I went for all our projects, all the things we do. And because everything involves a lot of personal contact with members and staff, I decided to spend all of them and that members would not be allowed to come to the office until further notice. And how has it been having to adapt, therefore, to sort of engaging with people and leading from a distance um, as in response to that? Well, I thought what, what we could provide for members, uh, staff would do research and phone call our 600 plus members and ask them how they are coping during the crisis and offer help and support with things like food and medicine. And also we set up a phone buddy project was so that members uh, would have company during the, the coronavirus where other members ring each other. Mm. And that's because mental health is incredibly important during a time like this, isn't it? The social isolation element of the lockdown has caused so many different issues, um, but also um, it's just about sort of keeping that sort of community feel together, isn't it? Because when a conventional office environment is essentially taken away from people. That can also affect individuals and that change to their everyday um, routine, can't it? Well, it was a complete culture change for my life, my choice, uh, because we used to do a lot of uh, personal contact face-to-face. Um, all our work was like doing that as well. You'd go out and do like uh, presentations and uh, training courses and all our, all our meetings, we used to go out and meet other celebrity groups as well that will be done face-to-face. And so this has all changed. Um, we decided that most of our services would be put online, but my life, my choice, would need to raise money in order to buy the computer equipment for uh, members. Mm. And we started this sort of in, firstly with the Jobs and Money team and the trustees first, so that um, the trustees could have... Uh, meetings like we used to we used to have them um, every uh, quarter but now we have them every month because i tell you at the start it was very difficult uh, uh, particularly with the jobs and many teams we uh, were online first uh, i was the only one who had a um, laptop and uh, the other members were on phones 
So we had to think of quickly how we could get some money together and to buy some equipment. Uh, one of our members has got a tablet there, the other has got laptops. But um, um, Lloyds Bank very kindly donated us, I think it was about 28 laptops in the end. Though, so, and we are getting more as, as the months go by. But it has been a real challenge as well to get people with learning disabilities uh, actually online because all the stuff has to be put in easy read. And then we give um, that group of support from the staff also that the carers uh, have helped them as well. And it's new for them as well, because they may not be that uh, IT literate to help uh, the members uh, get onto lo- get online. Mm. Technology has played such an important part in keeping the country running during this time, but you are absolutely right. There is no one-size-fits-all approach. It is something that does have to be carefully considered so that everybody can have access to those resources. And if we think just sort of about the long-term future now, particularly for charitable concerns like yourself, what do you think the sort of long-term implications of this pandemic are ultimately going to be? Because fundraising activities, especially those that take place in person, are very much restricted, aren't they? They are, yes, but we don't really do that much at uh, that at my life, my choice. We don't go out mm-hmm. with tins or anything like, like that, though. Um, it, more of us is stuff that's done online. We'll get uh, my uh, charity coordinator will actually go and get the money done and apply for lots of different grants and fundraising initiatives. And also, we get some money from the uh, local uh, county council as well. That's certainly positive that some resources are coming from uh, those sorts of uh, sources. That's very, very good to uh, to hear. And if we move on now just to sort of shift away from the ongoing COVID-19 situation and just address leadership that little bit more broadly, um, a lot of pressure has fallen upon the shoulders of leadership figures in organisations, businesses, governments as well, to provide some real certainty and reassurance and inspiration and motivation to keep people going during this time amid all of the worry. Um, but when you are the person who is having to provide all of that when you do need a little bit of just reassurance and inspiration for yourself where is it that you tend to look to to try and find that um well uh, uh oh that's quite hard i could rely on myself more or less uh, to give leadership and because uh, mm. I have been very I know you didn't want me to talk about the um, pandemic but I have been very vocal during this though I have been in the Oxford Mail three times and um, stating about how we've been forgotten and um no, that is very relevant, uh, Ben, for sure, because it essentially means that you've really taken a, uh, a front row um, role in really championing the needs of the charitable sector during this time, because there has been a great amount of government support for businesses, as we have seen through various initiatives, but sometimes charitable organisations, it has been difficult to access the support that they've needed. So when it comes to sort of government leadership, there has been a little bit of a gap there that we've certainly seen Um, but also during this time it's important to consider as well from a leadership point of view it is an unprecedented challenge and it is a constant learning process isn't it we're all learning as we very much go along with this we've seen that in government we've seen the value of hindsight during this time but also in our own leadership roles running our own organizations I think it's fair to say that this experience has taught us an awful lot as well hasn't it well yes I'd like to constantly remind those in power that people with learning disabilities are important mm. and 
that, that even uh, sort of things like the national death rates provided by the CQC confirm what we suspected that people learning disabilities like older people in care homes are seen as low priority by those in power. Mm. And then we've had the lack of PPE, the lack of testing, the removal of COVID-19 affected people from hospitals to care homes, and the early decision by the central government to abandon track and trace have almost certainly led to the needless deaths of people with learning disabilities. But I can say, thankfully, in Oxfordshire, where I live, this seems to be uh, different with no discernible increase in deaths over and above the record for the same period as last year. It is a significant um thing to take um, on board that isn't it the fact that um, a lot of mistakes that were made early on in the pandemic have certainly caused um, a great deal of um, stress for a great um, amount of uh, people it's caused an insurmountable um, of course some amount of loss it's uh, it's awful what's happened uh, we've seen a terrible death rate during this time but we can only hope in terms of the uh, the future that hopefully the government is going to get this right show that robust leadership that we all need and hopefully the trajectory from here can only be positive but just not in the sense of cases and deaths of course we want to be really trying to get out of this over the course of the next 12 months but as i said the the national death rate proves to us that uh people with learning disabilities like people in care homes are seen as low priority by this government and it's just the the CQC figures indicate that we, what we have feared, for learning disabilities in care settings, are at the same risk of catching the coronavirus as older people. Would you say that, that um, consideration for these groups is the one big thing that nobody's talking about in the midst of this crisis at the moment? Yeah. And that is something, isn't it, that leaders therefore have to really take into consideration from here, isn't it? And we really need strong leadership to address the problem. Well, yes. I agree there totally, yes. It's certainly going uh, to be an interesting uh, few months. Yes, uh, Ben, go on uh, for sure. Um, do, do do continue. I would like to raise more um, concerns over testing, saying quite right, older people in care settings are beginning to get access to testing, but people with learning disabilities are not treated with the same priority. They need to, uh, to do this uh, or cut for all the number of deaths will escalate. Because mm. I have got interesting um, fact is that uh, people with learning disabilities are four more times likely to die from COVID-19 than the general population. And that we've definitely been our support in terms of protection from the pandemic. Many of my members are terrified of catching the virus and are even nervous about going about still now, and especially now there's going to be another six months of it. Mm. And even uh, de- dealing with that, though, I was really impressed with Oxford City's request for stewards to help maintain social distancing around the city in Oxford to sensible, proportionate, safe and reasonable, one, I think. But the fact that the pe- needs of people with learning disabilities and those of other disabilities have yet been ignored, again, it's not been of great surprise. And I've only just found out that uh, Oxford City Council didn't get the money for the stewards from the government. And uh, I'd like to think uh, perhaps one day we'll be seen by those in power as equal partners in our communities rather than just a nuisance. So over the uh, the next 12 months, as we continue to get to grips with this new normal, and of course the government continues to try and lead the country through this crisis, what is it that you're really hoping to see happen? And what is it that you're really hoping to achieve at your own organisation during that time as well? Well, I'm hoping that we can all get the virus as soon as it comes out 
and then we can get once we've all been vaccinated, we can all get back to the things we will do, and I, I can start rebuilding the charity again because I know there's going to be a lot of tough decisions to make ahead. Because I reckon uh, we'll get less funding and we're going to be more resourceful because people will not be so giving because they'll be thinking, oh, we've lost so much money ourselves and there's going to be less money in the pot for charities, I think, in the next uh, five years or so. Mm, the economic um, consequences of um, coronavirus, of course, with the recession, that is a concern for charitable organisations and it's going to be a challenging time for them. But it is going to take a little bit of adaptability and innovation as well from charities to try and find um, alternative funding sources, isn't it? So that's another great challenge that organisations like yours are going to have to take on as a result of all of this. And I think it's important to remember that they can't be expected to do it on their own. They do need yeah. support as well. Well, definitely. Uh, before the pandemic, we had our most successful year ever. And I was even thinking about recruiting the number of staff. But uh, we had one staff leave just uh, before the pandemic started. So we didn't bother to replace them. I then put uh, four members of staff on the furlough. And they came, three of them came back in June. And I had to make one member of staff compulsory redundant because we didn't have enough work for them to do. So they had to go. Mm, it's and an incredible member of staff has been um, it's been put on secondment with another charity until uh, next month. It's such an incredible shame to see people having to go through this, isn't it, as a result of the uh, the pandemic. And that's also something to keep a very, very close eye on over the course of the uh, the next year, because it has predict- it's been predicted that unemployment is something that is going to rise over the next few months, particularly as um, the furlough scheme winds down in October and also new support measures start to come in for businesses. And it's so, so important that charitable organisations are considered when further support is enacted. Oh, definitely, yes. And uh, we could get back to normal. More of our members could do more paid work, but we need the actual um, other parts of the sector to start moving again, uh, particularly when it's our power-up uh, project, that we can go back out and do our presentations and do training uh, and tell people about uh, learning disabilities. And uh, But it's not all bad news, though. We are mm. starting to do... Um, uh, one of our projects online called Quality Checkers, where we actually go into people's um, people with learning disabilities homes and check mm. to see it, how they're run and if they're good quality and what uh, if the people in there have good lives and make sure there's plenty of activities for them to do. I'd, so mm. we're, do, we're doing that, and also hopefully soon we're hoping to do uh, care treatment reviews online as well where we used to go in secure hospitals and um, you always have an expert by experience. That'd be something with a learning disability would be on the panel there when they interviewed the person who was actually uh, staying in the hospital. It's certainly encouraging to see that services like that, where you are being able to go into homes and assess and also carry out more services online are certainly starting to come back and let's hope certainly that that continues um, in earnest going forward. Um, I am conscious, uh, Ben, that we are just um, running out of time, but just before we do wrap things up on the programme, we have talked about the uh, the future and how that's going to pan out. But what I wanted to, uh, to ask you just before we finish is um, if you could, of course, give one message to um, aspiring young leaders out there, but also established leaders out there who are carrying us through this uh, pandemic situation, what sort of message would you want to give them? 
I'd say uh, that we've uh, just got to be uh, resilient. I think they, this will end and we've just got to get through it. And then hopefully we'll be able to uh, get back to where we before the pandemic. But it's going to take a long time. I mean, you're talking about five, six years, I think, now, because this has had a devastating effect on us. And I know it's, it feels bad that all the hard work you've done has really been undone, but you've just, you've just got to be more, more resilient, I would say. Uh, mm. And um, uh, it's, it's tough, though. It's really tough. And, well, that's what I can say, really, because I, I don't know myself, really, what is gonna, what's going to happen in the next five years. You have to, you have to pay out like a month-by-month um, basis, I think, because all the, all the information we're getting at the moment is changing every week. Mm, it certainly is, isn't it? There is a lot of changing guidelines and changing circumstances out there, and people are really having to adapt to sort of new changes at very, very short notice. So that is something that organisations and businesses alike are going to have to continue to get to grips with for sure. Um, ben, I have to say, it's been and thoroughly enlightening experience having you come on to the program today to discuss your views and you've delivered them with such passion and you know i actually think it would be wonderful considering how it's been speaking to you this morning to welcome you back on to the show at some point in the next year just to see how things are coming along and we can assess at that point just whether the charitable sector is getting that attention that it so thoroughly deserves okay thank you very much it's been wonderful ben and most importantly until we do speak again hopefully please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on and of course that goes for everybody of course that you work with as well okay that's great thanks for your help and your support it's my pleasure, Ben. Thank you ever so much. Um, I would also um, reiterate that message to every single one of our listeners today. Do please continue to be considerate of others and look after yourselves during this time because it just make a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, coming up next on the programme today, it's time for our exclusive interview with England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Um, Sir Jeff, during his professional football career, scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, but he remains most renowned for the fact that he is the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a FIFA World Cup, following his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the Old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. So Jeff will be reflecting on some of the highlights of his career, his leadership inspirations and also the wonderful job that the NHS has been doing over the last few months. That is coming up next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might last. Absolutely. Thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. 
Um, I've had a good run uh, with, with this record, and goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, a uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm, want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just I really want the country to do well in in anything in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I will not wanting to bury it, and I'll be absolutely I will be as delighted as anybody in in the country um, if if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago, and it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my. Uh, my achievements about the team being successful, whether I got two or three, in one sense is, is uh, wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand. We all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving, as the whistle in his mouth, but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, is the game nearly finished? I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans Tilkowski the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours and it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game is unfinished, but that that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, making it, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life an element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, 
this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it. And so on, but really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and important it is to have a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and and also into what was also for me fantastic all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that, I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coming to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, uh, technically good enough to, to be around to be uh, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be 
prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined, moving from one to the other, uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively, and you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from the discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and um, all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic players. Uh, people in my life, in my in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think it, leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management; they have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're sensible enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think like that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during Absolutely. your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or places very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenway, as it was called in Chelmsford, 
we was at three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac. It's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so it's always a three of play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court. And uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbor's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you, there's nowhere else to play apart from the street. And uh, we were actually, but that, that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He played uh, lower down for Oldham Rossdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton on the line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was probably I was the eldest of three. When I was probably about seven or eight, into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think, was uh, had a big influence. Going back to that third goal in the World Cup, in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford. And he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, it's, uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two footed. And I was maybe not as two footed as Bobby Charlton, even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty, pretty, um, um, Two-footed, and a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, And what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial w- with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, Although I enjoyed football, and I was pretty reasonably good. There was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or, uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, "Come and have a trial at this club or that club." Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter, so that's that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about. I, I 
kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then, or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game, and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got Norton and Norton on out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game, funny. I filmed a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, the V Lancashire up. Up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done with some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games for those two or three years. Extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23 24 games no 27 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player so um, quite changed dramatically um, that was 60 62 63 season the three years before the World Cup and when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and they were showing a lot of videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, up and not just sitting balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. 
Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world class player in, but in the squad and Ray Wilson our left back I'd always argue was a world class player so you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a world cup some world class players and Banksy was up there w- w- not with the best the best for me and another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that has uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see in myself. I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. The, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold. Mm. Without any shadow of a doubt, he, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham it was a great time at the club and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years and it was a fantastic time for that particular club they won of course the uh, the the League Cup before I went there mm. sadly they knocked us out in the semi-final so it was a, a marvellous time 
for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played eight actually the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge, and I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I've made very little contribution to that success that I've had. So, um, yes, it, 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 the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it as long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters, and my wife, and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a, I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was, and uh, enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New, new kitchen. <laughs> So it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's, I think the, that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes Maybe, uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not so, so immediately after you've finished playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke when people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend. And, and I always joke and say, you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not not certainly, um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has, has natural characteristics. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if you're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's the simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players, I felt should have been in the squad possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, when you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad, and I felt that was and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be 
who wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Mm, ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela in fact that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways and I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed yes it is very good good advice yes so Jeff thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the program this morning it's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life career and leadership and it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the program in future to discuss further pleasure thank you enjoy, enjoy being part of the program thank you Likewise, thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.